when they ask us what we do in a Buddhist monastery, one of the standard answers is, you say it's a place of study and practice of the Buddhist teachings. Study is pariyati, practice is patibhati. These two parts of the Buddhist path support each other. Ajahn Chah used to say that uh, we study the teachings in order to practice or for the practice. So study isn't something we do as an end in itself. It's to provide us with information, examples, ideas, principles that we can then use and apply for the practice. We might say that studying just for the sake of study or gaining knowledge for its own sake <coughs> is a more worldly attitude that we find. And it can even come into Buddhism and Buddhist practice. Sometimes we feel the more we read, the more we listen will gain some kind of advantage. <coughs> Might somehow make us seem more confident. And the more we read, the more we know. But if it doesn't lead on to the practice, then it can be even an obstacle to monastic life if we don't have a wise attitude towards knowledge and to the towards the the study and the learning that we do. There's no one right amount because each person's character is different and some people really find it beneficial to read a lot, study a lot, and this gives them more confidence in the Buddha's words and in the path that we're practicing. Others find it almost a distraction and they just study and listen the bare minimum. Ask few questions, just take the bare minimal knowledge and put it into practice. There's no one standard here, but the guideline is the study we do the learning is for the practice, to support practice. Sometimes people would come to Ajahn Chah and they had learnt a lot, they knew a lot. Maybe they were 
doctors or professors or people with a lot of worldly knowledge or even knowledge of the scriptures but perhaps they hadn't practiced yet so sometimes would compare them with vultures say so they fly very high but what do vultures feed on? They come down and feed on corpses. Even if we've gained a lot of knowledge, <coughs> we might still have very coarse mental defilements and negative emotions affecting us in our daily life. We might still have very unskillful ways in our habits and ways of doing things. The knowledge in itself is not yet a guarantee of true wisdom or purity or peace of mind. But it's a step, it's a supportive step that we use to lead on to the practice. There's also the relationship between what we call the external study and the internal study. The external Pariyati is the obvious, it's the scriptures, the talks, the advice we receive. The internal is where we learn from our own experience, from our six ayatana and their objects, the eyes and forms, ears and sounds, nose and smell the tongue and taste, the body and tactile sensations, the mind and mind objects. This is the internal pariyati where we're learning, learning about life, about the world, about our relationship to the world, learning about how the five candors that we inhabit operate. And most important of all, we learn how suffering arises and how to free ourselves from suffering. One aspect of the modern world is that the amount of sense contact and data information we're receiving is increasing all the time. Even if we manage to live in a quiet forest which is conducive to the practice. The world, and particularly with the rise of technology and communication media, it's constantly impinging on us and the people around us, even if not directly on us, impinges on the people around us and they impinge on us. So in our practice of the internal pariyati we have to be on our guard use the training as a way to bring up the skillful qualities to deal with that fact that we're receiving information, data from all over the place. And this is obviously going to leave an impression on our mind. So the Buddha in his wisdom gave us the Vinaya. So inheritance from the previous generations of bhikkhus, from our teacher Ajahn Chah, from 
previous generations right back to the Buddha. And it's still applicable today, it's still useful today to help us to train this mind to deal with the world skillfully. How to live in the world without creating more suffering than we need to for ourselves or for others. And as we practice the Vinaya, obviously we learn the Vinaya as part of the Pariyati. We learn it, we recite it, remember it, think about it. Then we have to learn to internalize it. And it's supporting the arising of the path factors as we practice it. As we practice the Vinaya, we guide it with wisdom. We reflect on the purpose of it and how to use it skillfully as we learn. And as we apply it, we'll find that it helps us to train on all levels, body, speech and mind. In the short term and in the immediate mm. good result, the benefit of the Vinaya is it stops us making a lot of negative karma in our daily life. It promotes skillful living, skillful action, interaction with fellow monastics, the laity, interaction with the environment and the world around us. And it also trains us in mindfulness if we apply ourselves to the Vinaya, bringing up the qualities that will support the deeper practice of meditation and insight. But our first tasks entering the monastery is to learn the Vinaya, the Pariyati, and then put it into practice to learn, see it as a training vehicle. And it's a very useful one. It's tried and tested by monks, nuns, lay people throughout the ages, and it's been a vehicle that's brought many to enlightenment, to the end of suffering. Nibbana. It's the practice of the noble ones, the Arya Sangha that we look up to and aspire to, to emulate in our practice. As we, the more we study the Vinaya, the more we can see there are basic themes that are helping us in the practice. If you relate it to, say, Samma Sankapa, right thought, right aspiration, in the Vinaya is helping us to train in Nekama Sankapa, renunciation. It's going against our previous conditioning, sort of cultural conditioning, that it's normal to constantly aspire to consume more, get more, have more pleasant experiences and more material things and so on. It's teaching us fewness of wishes and contentment. And many of the rules are guiding us how to attain requisites, how to use them, look after them, how to be careful and frugal. It relates directly to our state of mind and gives us guidelines and principles, standards, 
which we can use every day. It also trains us to give up thoughts and intentions based on anger and hatred. It promotes harmonious behavior, a mutual respect between samanas, forgiveness, letting go of grudges, taking care with our speech, our actions, in the way we interact with others. Again, many rules will be directing this. First of all on the outside and then working inwards to the mind itself. And the aim is the use of the Vinaya brings us brings up a sense of ease once we get used to it and appreciate it as a tool, a skillful means. Then it brings us a sense of ease and even happiness and a freedom from regret, remorse or guilt as we get used to practicing with the Vinaya. It makes us a good Kalyanamitta for others because we come, become one who is trustworthy, say, honest in our dealing with, with others and living our life in a harmless way. So we provide safety and trustworthiness to others just as a natural result of keeping the Vinaya. Mm -hmm. This is very much a part of our external training, being a Kalyanamitta to the Sangha members and even to the laity. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to know a lot of Dhamma. What we study can be very helpful for teaching and explaining things to others. It's more being a good example by following the Vinaya, upholding the Vinaya and providing this sense of um, harmlessness and supportiveness for other beings. As we know, the Buddha said this is very much the whole of the holy life, developing the qualities of the Kalyanamitta, both associating with other Kalyanamitta and also developing the qualities in oneself. And this is what the Vinaya does in the beginning. But obviously as we practice it, it sometimes brings up Difficulties, it can be frustrating because of our old habits and conditionings. Sometimes we're tempted by situations that we find ourselves in to transgress the Vinaya. So there's often there's a bit of tension at first as we have to restrain ourselves. So particularly in the beginning, we have to remind ourselves of the value of it to give us that motivation to bring up the effort to practice the restraint and follow the rules until we're sure that we they are good for us, they're helping us in the practice. And that comes through over time, through direct experience having kept the Vinaya for a while, you might have seen how it's helped you in different situations, help keep you out of trouble, stop you making 
bad karma, creating problems with yourself, with others, then you start to appreciate it, you relax more and the restraint is not so hard because you know it's helping you. It's a supportive factor in the practice. But in the beginning we have to have some patience, endurance, because we're working with our mind which isn't fully tamed yet. So we might have under temptation or provocation there might be tendency times when we might be tempted to break the Vinaya. We just have to hold on and be patient. But if we use it in conjunction with meditation and developing inwardly, we can see the the very intentions and mind states which come up which might lead us to break the Vinaya are temporary. They're an each they're impermanent and they're not self. And that patience and restraint allows us to see that. See, different mind states arise, pass away, and already that's a form of meditation. Even without having sat down cross-legged or done any walking meditation, we're already developing the meditative attitude by keeping the Vinaya and using it as a vehicle to restrain our more negative tendencies to bring up mindfulness, bring up these skillful qualities of the path. Sometimes in the beginning the Vinaya can be a cause of suffering just in the sense that we haven't yet learnt to haven't developed a wise attitude towards it all the time. Sometimes we cling too tightly. Sometimes we let go too easily. And there's a middle way here, a balance that we have to learn what is the right amount. Obviously it can become a form of upadana. <coughs> and particularly when people are don't appreciate the value of the Vinaya, often they, we use this as a criticism and say, Monks, they attach too much to their rules. So it's an area we have to reflect on. And it's not necessarily wrong in the beginning to attach a little bit too tightly. Better to attach too tightly and then relax than to be too loose, because it's very hard if you're loose to tighten up again. Ajahn Chah said it's the Vinaya, it's a bit like a bottle drinking water, a you know, water bottle. You want the water, which is the Dhamma that you're developing the insight into truth and the true nature of things. That's what you want, the water, but you need the bottle. So you hold the bottle and you tip it into your mouth and you get the water, but you still need the bottle. But when you finish with it, you put it down because you've got the water that you need. The Vinaya is a bit like this. You hold it, but not in a fixed way. We use it as a tool to get to the Dhamma. And in the end we can let go of it once we understand how to train the mind. And the mind is seeing the Dhamma. We can actually put it down. 
But putting down is something you do internally as well. It's not that once we're, we were enlightened, if we were to be enlightened, then it all uh, suffering, abandon all the defilements, and then you give up the Vinaya. Even the Buddha, all the great arahants, they said you keep up the Vinaya, the traditions, it's a good example for others, it's a good way to live. Someone as they provide an example to society as a whole. So putting down the Vinaya, putting down the bottle, it's not that you just give it all up. I mean, you don't hold on to it so tightly, though, because it's achieved its aim. It's got you to see the Dhamma. The practice of letting go is a bit like this. In the beginning, we don't want to let go of the Vinaya until we've gained true wisdom. So it's better to hold on to it, because it's a useful tool. But when we do let go, we're letting go in, internally, meaning we still look after the Vinaya, we still perform the actions of a Samana and we still live in the world and develop the skills of living in the world well and to do good. But internally we're letting go, we're letting go of the sense of self, the conceit that might form. Say in the case of the Vinaya, it might be a sense of, oh, I keep the Vinaya better than someone else. Or, or I'm a monk with Vinaya, they're just a lay person. Or I'm a monk who has good discipline, that's not a good monk, and so on. We're learning to reflect internally on the sense of conceit that might form around the Vinaya, the attachment, letting go. It doesn't mean to say we stop keeping the Vinaya. It's the kalesa of conceit and attachment that we're letting go of. That's something quite subtle that we have to address, particularly through meditation. And it may be through meditation that you see it. As keeping the Vinaya, you might be keeping quite strictly well and well, but then when you come to meditate, then your deeper views and attitudes towards the Vinaya and the sense of self that might come up around it will start to reveal themselves. You might have a dis, um, you might have aversion come up towards others based on around rules. That person doesn't keep the rule in the same way as me or a difference in opinion over a rule or something. It will come up as you meditate. That's where you have to look at how to use the Vinaya skillfully to let go of your own defilements. And maybe on the outside nobody knows this is going on, you're doing it for yourself. So as we practice, as we practice our daily duties, follow the routine of the monastery, do our meditation and so on, go through our life. We're practicing on the, keeping up the Vinaya, but on the inside we're also letting go of the sense of self that may form around it. And this is how we practice this. This is the Buddhist path, developing that inner wisdom through 
improving mindfulness and then reflecting, developing some insight into our own experience. You'll notice if you're following the Vinaya and it's generally going well, then it's fairly easy to calm down, even if the mind is still not peaceful. It's fairly easy to apply ourselves to a meditation object because there's not a lot of regret or guilt, confusion or agitation in the mind. So it's worth investing effort in learning the Vinaya, getting used to it, getting a good attitude towards it. And then we have to use it as a backdrop, a foundation for the meditation. On the deeper level, we're learning to reflect back on this human being that we have, the five candors. The Buddha encouraged us to contemplate, to see how permanent is this body and mind? How strongly do we identify with it as a permanent self with our different physical and mental experience? Obviously at first this can seem a little bit of a daunting task. It's so much. Every thought, feeling, emotion, body and mind is a lot. So we have to learn to calm the mind using mindfulness techniques using the different samatha meditations. We use wisdom as well to help calm the mind. We should develop that sense of the importance of putting effort in developing mindfulness, steadying the mind, stabilizing the mind, so that we can contemplate. We all know how fickle the mind is, how it flips around. In one moment it's in a good state, wholesome state, and the next it falls into an unwholesome state. Just as we can be practicing the Vinaya and then still fall into negative states and attitudes towards the Vinaya as attachment comes up, meditation's the same. One minute we're practicing with a wholesome desire, putting effort into following the breath, the next minute we drop into craving, frustrated that we haven't got the results that we want, or judging ourselves. And the mind f flips around like this, from wholesome to unwholesome, very quickly, even within the practice that we're doing. So we have to learn to calm the mind, develop some stillness, some quiet, so that things can come out and reveal themselves more clearly. It's the sharpness and the continuity of mindfulness that will help us do this. To really look back at the five candors to start to see them as they are in a more detached way rather than being caught up in them all the time, all the mental proliferation, the different emotions that come up. This is why we practice a lot of repetitive meditation, sitting and walking regularly. But any amount of calm, you'll see the value of it. It helps you to actually look more carefully at, back at yourself. 
to witness uh, the what we say the internal pariyati, to notice how how much we're stimulated by sense contact. Now Jen Chao used to say, if you're not sure how to contemplate or where to begin, begin with the body, always come back to this body. It seems so basic, so simple that we tend to overlook it. When you ordain as a monk, you're given the first meditation objects, the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. It's a reminder that that's where we can start to develop wisdom, contemplating. Even if the mind is not very peaceful, we can do this as an exercise. Train in looking, questioning, analyzing this body, and starting just with the very obvious external things that we have the hair, the skin. One of the reasons we're so agitated these days, so difficult to develop some calm, is because we receive so much sense impress, so many sense impressions from all around. We travel a lot more than people used to. We see visual images in computers and TVs and screens and magazines and posters all the time. And a lot of this is just reinforcing the attachment to the body. Ideals of beauty prompting us to always be judging our body against others, how good we look, our self-image and then also the bodies of others, attracted to others, different body types. So although the impingement is more these days, if you look at it with wisdom, it's actually just proving how right the Buddha was to give us the f these five body contemplations as our first exercise in meditation when we ordain. It's just exactly what we need to, to counter this tendency where we, to receive so much impingement these days. You think about it, a hundred years ago people wouldn't travel overseas on aeroplanes they wouldn't see movies or posters or newspapers or anything photographs nowadays we're absorbing consciously or unconsciously all the time so to develop some mindful awareness of this body is a way both to develop calm and wisdom the most skillful thing you just take the time. If you're practicing meditation, you really can't settle down. You can't focus on the breath. You can't concentrate on any meditation object. We just try going through the 32 parts. And it's like having a discussion with yourself at first, just asking this body I identify with so strongly, what's it made up of? The four elements earth, air, fire, water. You obtain these through our breathing, through food. What's food like? Food, you eat it, becomes very repulsive straight away as it enters the body. Air comes in and out, liquid we drink, comes out as urine. This body's subject to change. Each body part, you, know, you look at, just say, take something like the skin, 
maybe yes, as a project you can take your skin for one day and just look at skin, look at your hands, the most obvious parts of the, the skin you can see easily. It's through a course of one day, yeah, when you wash things and bathe, your skin changes, gets all wrinkly and shriveled. When the skin gets a lot of wind, it dries, cracks. When we get too much sun, it changes colour. Without washing, it gets greasy, smelly. It gets blemishes, it gets pimples and scars and scabs and different skin diseases. How unreliable is skin? It's very thin. If you get a cut, straight away it gets through to the flesh and blood comes out. How it changes with age. Your skin is not anything like it was ten years ago. If you're still around in ten years, it won't be like it is now. You just take one part of the body and already it's revealing the nature of the rupakanda to us as we contemplate. It's like this. And that affects our perceptions so we become more aware of the impermanence the lack of self in this body it just goes according to its natural, the natural laws, biological laws, destined for deterioration, old age, sickness and death. And the more you become aware of that in your own body, so your own skin, then you notice it in others. Instead of focusing on the beauty of others, you also notice the ugly side and the the impermanence of others, just as you see in the impermanence of yourself. Leads on to a sense of dispassion, a sense of compassion as well. With wisdom arises compassion. We understand the suffering of all beings, even animals. You know, they have these fragile bodies that are subject to old age, sickness, injury, death. It's not easy. And the more you focus mindfulness on the body and contemplate, the more you feel compassion for yourself and for others. The limitations of existence as, as sentient beings, you're dependent on breath, dependent on food, dependent on warmth when it's cold, keeping cool when it's hot, protection from the elements and so on constantly struggling with this body to keep it going and all it does is get older and move towards its end. As you focus like this, you know, any time when you're sitting or walking meditation, it can take your mind right away from other hindrances that might normally be bothering you. And you're building up an accumulation of knowledge that becomes direct experience. True, in the beginning it's just thinking, we're just thinking, running through the, the information that we have, visual information, knowledge about the body, about things that we remember and so on. But over time it does gradually become direct experience, where you're just knowing the way the body is. It's impermanent, it's not self, it's unattractive. 
that normal grasping at the sense of self, comparing with others. They're bigger or more beautiful than me. This one's beautiful, that one's not, and so on. Starts to fade. And the deeper truth about the body becomes apparent to the mind. When the mind's really peaceful, sometimes nimittas arise. See the body parts or the body in a state of decay, a corpse or whatever. We don't have to think too much about those results. Better to put effort into the causes. Get to know the body as a foundation of mindfulness. Reflect on it. Develop wisdom around it. And this leads to the letting go. But again, you don't let go of the body in sense. You don't just give up feeding it, clothing it, looking after it. That would be somebody who's you know, letting go in the wrong way just becomes passive or inactive and you still look after your body you keep it healthy and look after it because it's your vehicle for practicing it's your good karma that you have a healthy body that you can practice so you look after it this letting go is on the inside as you go about your business you might be letting go on the inside. You see somebody else walking towards you and you might be reflecting, oh, their body same as mine. It's an Ichadukha Anatta. Instead of in the old habit of just looking at this, is they're beautiful, they're not, they're handsome, they're good looking, they're bad looking, they're strong, they're weak, they're this, they're that. So on the inside the mind is letting go. On the outside we might be acting normally just speaking, interacting with others, doing our duties and so on. But the letting go is on the inside. And all the time the insight is, in, is stilling the mind, quietening the mind. Sometimes we reflect on the body, then the mind goes quiet. Then we can ref follow the breathing where we couldn't before. Sometimes we quieten the mind with the breath first and then contemplate the body. All the time that we do this over periods of months, years, you're building up the knowledge that comes from the patibhati. Whereas at first it was the pariyati, listening to talks, reading the suttas, over time it becomes more direct experience. So it becomes more like your own, that's something you really own for yourself. And it, that's where you can really experience the quietness of the mind, when it accepts the way things are. So naturally it becomes more quiet, more dispassionate, detached from things. Because you know this is the way things are, you've seen it. even. Our mental activity, which is much harder to reflect on and contemplate because it's so fast and changing all the time. But little by little you start to gain a, some direct understanding of the way things are. You see so many thoughts, even if you had many, many negative, unpleasant, unhappy thoughts arise, over time you can't help but notice that they just arise and pass away. They're not there all the time. 
there's no need to identify with them so strongly. We look at them and then we let them go. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, little by little, with the rising of insight, then the mind gets weary of identifying so strongly with them. So we start to get an, un an understanding, a taste of how these five candors are. We say the focuses of identity, of attachment. But through contemplating, seeing them the way they are, then you know, the mind becomes brighter. Through this understanding, it starts to let go. It's, it's willing to let go. The Vinaya helps us with that as well. Like when you keep the Vinaya well, you have this sense of well-being, being at ease with yourself, being at ease in the robes. Then the mind is also willing to let go of more refined, subtle things inside, in a subtle sense of self, self-identification with the candors. You know, at first, it's, it seems just too much to let go of a lot of different thoughts and emotions. But as you have the sense of well-being from the Vinaya and then some stability and peace of mind from your meditation and then the insight that understands the way things are, then the mind finally is willing to let go of attachment and grasping. When we begin practice, we're too afraid often. We haven't done it enough. We don't trust the Buddha Dhamma Sangha enough, we don't trust the Vinaya enough, we don't trust the meditation techniques enough. So we're afraid to let go, we think we'll lose what we're used to holding on to and having for ourselves. We think we'll be worse off. That changes over time, if you keep practicing you actually see you're better off letting go. You'll be happier, more peaceful letting go and it's the clinging that's the problem. You actually get a shift in the way your whole mind, the whole attitude, and the way the mind looks at things. So they say the noble ones enjoy letting go. They don't want to cling on because they know it's suffering, cause of suffering. The patujana clings on, whatever, and they're afraid to let go. And that's what keeps us in the world, keeps us suffering because we keep clinging. Zajan Chah used to say, most people, they're not, because they haven't done the practice, they haven't contemplated enough, or they're not yet ready to let go of the world. So they'd rather just spend their time trying to make the world fit their desires, their attachments the best they can. And some people do it better than others, but if they're still in the world, then it doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor, famous or anonymous, they're still in the world. You compare it to like a bird in a cage. You know, we can be in a cage, we can spend all our day beautifying the cage, make a nice golden jewel-encrusted cage, but it's still a cage, still stuck, still not free or liberated. Whereas the true samana is liberated because they've seen this attachment is a cause of suffering. They're willing to let go and they're not afraid to let go.
So tonight is the half moon night. We'll do some chanting and then encourage you to put a bit more effort into your practice, do more sitting, more walking. It's never wrong to bring up more mindfulness in the practice, to put more effort into bringing up mindfulness. Never wrong. So, leave you with these reflections tonight.